from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of short stories and novels who has taken the serial killer thriller into primetime entertainment. He's joining me today to discuss his recent novel, Serial Publication, as well as his upcoming short story collection, Symposium of the Reaper, Volume 3. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Andrew Adams. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I've uh, been a fan for a long time. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Definitely a fan of your book. Thank you for joining me on this 16th day of August 2023. I came across your book, Serial Publication, by a recommendation of Alana K. Drex. So I knew based on Alana's writing that it would be dark, emotional, and heavy with existential angst. And I was correct. The book is Serial Killer Fair, mixed with tech noir and dystopian brooding, so I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm glad to have you on the show today. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about whatever we feel like discussing. I'm an open book with everything, so nothing's off limits. Nice, I appreciate that. Well, so the story is about a detective named Aaron Underwood who ends up investigating the aftermath of a very bizarre murder involving the creativity of an artist and the skill of a surgeon. The killer, a man named Charles Proctor, works out a deal with the top brass in the local police department to do a weekly pay-per-view live stream to reveal the location of the body so the police can discover it in real time, all while being broadcast to a bloodthirsty crowd. So what do you think is so compelling about serial killers that turn murder into performance art, which I guess is an apt description of like Francis Dollarhide and Red Dragon, John Doe and Seven, even though it's not performance art in the classical sense, they're trying to make a point. Yeah, I think you nailed it right there. They are trying to make a point, and I think it's the juxtaposition between you're murdering people at will and seemingly at random to everybody else, but you're doing it to make a point. You have a plan as the killer in serial publication. They are paying money to watch it. So it's just that juxtaposition between having someone who's murdering people 
and also thinking that they're right. It's kind of a God complex, if anything. Mm -hmm. And it's compelling to us because at least I would hope most of us aren't serial killers and <laughs> we don't have that in us. Don't, I don't knock I really it until you tried it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in my later years. But, um, <laughs> so I just think that's the compelling part. People can't look away. It's a car crash situation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a side note, Red Dragon or Seven? Seven. I'm yes. a huge Seven fan. All right, we can continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Seven. Saw it at a young age and definitely a big influence. I started out as a filmmaker in my younger years. So. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. That was a huge influence. So I was listening to you on Josh's Worst Nightmare podcast, and you mentioned that you have a bit of an obsession with ancient Egypt and the way they prepared their dead. So how did these gruesome post-mortem methods inform the violence in serial publication? And can you maybe give some examples of some of the more brutal methods involved in their almost obsession with the afterlife. It seems like they paid more attention working towards the afterlife than they did for their waking life. Yeah, I think one of the biggest similarities between the two would be in serial publication, Charles is murdering these people and he is creating them out to be essentially martyrs in his mind. And in ancient Egypt, only the rich and the pharaohs were embalmed and had their organs removed to be preserved. That wouldn't happen to a slave or a peasant. Mm -hmm. So the similarity would be in Charles's mind, he's actually doing these people somewhat of a favor. He's making them a legend. And in ancient Egypt, it was much the same. So as far as the methods go, a little bit different because in Egypt, it would have been a religious thing instead of a performance art. But the concept would be similar, at least. And what were you guys talking about removing a brain through the nose? (laughs) They used to remove the brain and throw it away because they thought it was useless, actually. That's interesting. How do you get something? I mean, I understand it's spongy gray matter, but how do you get that out of a nostril? (laughs) A really long hook, actually. Wow. Uh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Postmortem, at least. Oh, I'm about to say I'd love to see that, but maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's fascinating to me because that would have been common practice for them. And for us, that's unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And that's what's interesting about life is perspective and time changes everything. Yeah, they actually did believe that expression. You can't take it with you. Didn't they believe they were buried with gold and Mm -hmm. material possessions because they thought they could take it with? Yep. Yeah. Toss the brain aside. It wasn't it Stargate. Did you ever see that movie? I think they... No, I haven't. I think the Egyptians are involved. I think they did mention the brain being pulled out through the nose. Yeah, I think they did mention that. I didn't even realize until I listened to the podcast that that was historically accurate. (laughs) Yep. And that was something I was largely interested in as a child as well. And then I ended up writing a story about it, a short story, in my Symposium of the Reaper collection. Mm -hmm. But that was more of a farcical horror It was meant to be dark humor, Mm. that one. So Another side note, you don't uh, do any filmmaking anymore? No, I haven't in quite some time just because I do have a family and children and a job. and, Mm. And it's hard to get people together, honestly. Yeah. That's the hardest part with it. 
So that's why I started writing. Yeah. Much easier to be a writer. I'm sure I could never be a filmmaker. I don't think I could manage people very well. I can do a podcast, but uh, they turn on you very quickly. I'll tell you that. Do they really? If you're trying to drive a project forward, you become the bad guy. That's just how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. Mm. Well, the story in serial publication takes place in the year 2031 and the technological advances have made it almost completely unnecessary to have any kind of in-person human interaction which is pretty close to the way it is now although zoom did make their remote employees go back into the office ironically enough (laughs) so do you think technology's natural trajectory is to eliminate human interaction and i don't mean like you know some artificial intelligence nefarious intention i mean just by its very nature does it kind of push things towards the elimination of human interaction or do you think that most people have they've just gotten to the point that they don't want to interact with people outside of their friends and family and their immediate circles so they embrace anything tech related that'll allow them to live a more contained life i think people by their nature are very into convenience Mm -hmm. and technology offers convenience and abundance. So I think that's ultimately, you know, goes hand in hand. And I think that I don't want to say lazy, but I think people choose the path of least resistance by our nature. I'm guilty too. Mm -hmm. We're all guilty. And I think that that technology allows people to do that and to do things that we didn't used to do because they didn't have that as an option. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would much rather sit down and discuss the book, you know, face to face in person, but this is much more doable for both of us, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. It's kind of people choosing what's not as good for them as what is easiest to grasp. That's ultimately what it becomes. So tech's natural trajectory is to eliminate human interaction by producing convenience and people's natural inclination, whether they're like an introvert or antisocial or not, they could be the most social person in the world. I'm sure after a long day of work, they could care less if they could door dash or, you know, something like that. So, mm-hmm. yep. yeah. and I'm guilty too. I make no qualms about it. It is what it is. Yeah. I'm guilty of sin, but, uh, There's only certain things I feel bad about, though. I think my overuse of Amazon really gets to me because I know what I'm doing to small business. But as far as the book goes too, you know, the book was a point of observation, not necessarily a condemnation of anybody or anything, because all the things that happen in the book, I'm probably equally as guilty as anyone in the book. Mm -hmm. So. It's an observation, not necessarily a finger pointing. But not to bash Amazon. Amazon's done a lot for indie writing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Well, the government in your story seems to be a plutocracy. The world was really governed by private industry. And when you think about it, all political campaigns are funded by money with the expectation of political favors. So, I mean, we're kind of living in a plutocracy ourselves. So with so many jaded people in the story, how did Aaron exist? Even a good cop like Thomas knew to stay out of the upper echelon of management. So why did Aaron promote to sergeant? (laughs) Great question. 
both of those people are based on not anyone in particular, but types of people I've worked with for a lot of years. You know, I've worked in government contracts, military contracts, and things of that nature for 15 years. And you run into people like this. People like Thomas, they do a fantastic job and they're very good at what they do. And they leave it at the door and they go home and there's a separation. And then there's people like Aaron that can't seem to get out of their own way. And they are almost addicted to the responsibility and Mm. really putting the world on their shoulders. So when the opportunity to become a sergeant came up, she couldn't say no, because who else is going to do a better job? Right. In her eyes, of course. What seems to be the shelf life of enthusiasm? Like maybe both examples, the private sector and the public sector. When somebody comes on gung-ho, what seems to be the shelf life of enthusiasm? (laughs) Not long at all. Not long? Uh, Months? Not long. In the government sector, you either rise or you falter and you lose enthusiasm very quickly. Mm -hmm. And in certain respects, parts of Aaron's personality were based on myself and certain feelings like that where I would maybe put myself a little bit too much out there for my job. And Mm. you don't always get that reciprocation, especially government jobs and military contracts. Yeah. So do you mind me asking what you do or would you have to kill me? (laughs) No, 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 nothing like that. I'm a welder by trade. So I've done a lot of, that's why you've got the beard. Yeah, of course. It <laughs> all the welders that grow in. Yeah, all the welders have beards and then it gets yeah. burned off at the bottom of the helmet. So it's yeah. just right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been a welder since I was a teenager and I've done a lot of military contracts and government contracts and stuff like that. Nothing I can't exactly talk about, but it's I left that behind. So, mm. gotcha. Well, it seemed as though reality TV was the biggest moneymaker in entertainment. Like, I don't know if a standard, you know, like sitcoms or what's another example, you know, like National Geographic type stuff was going on. But it seemed like the main thing in 2031 was reality TV and what was the biggest moneymaker and murder was a gold mine. So. When it comes to any processed product, whether that be food or entertainment, it's created and marketed to get the biggest dopamine spike. And it's a known fact that people get desensitized and need more stimulation to maintain the same dopamine levels. So do you think the scenario in your book could be our natural end result of desensitization? Because when you think about like YouTube shorts and Instagram reels and TikTok, whatever the fuck those are called, you know, they're like these short little bursts, kind of like taking hits of a drug. Do you think that progression could lead to this in the book, this kind of sick, twisted, we need like real murder and real violence to uh, get our dopamine tuned up? I think it's possible. I hope not. But if we also go back in time to gladiator days and things of that nature, it's not incredibly far off. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it doesn't happen, but I think most people would agree that a lot of people, you know, their worldview doesn't extend far beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. So the impetus in the book was sort of that, well, it's not happening to me, so who cares? And that's how a lot of people think, even if we don't think we do. And again, I'm probably guilty of the same thing. Well, when you talk about gladiators, 
we've got UFC and people are obsessed with true crime podcasts. If I could get the amount of listeners that a true crime podcast gets, <laughs> I would be able to quit my day job. Jesus Christ. Yep. Yeah. So it's really not that far off except for, you know, they're willing participants and they get paid for it. However much that is mm -hmm. the UFC part. At least. Yeah. 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 And I don't think they're allowed to actively try to kill each other, but <laughs> uh, it's frowned upon. <laughs> they, they do it slowly though. Traumatic brain injury seems to be just this slow killer. I, I used to fight when I was a teenager. Oh yeah. I did. I quit for that reason. As a teenager, I trained and, fought competitively here and there so mm. it leaves a mark for sure but there's a thrill to it yeah do you ever have like any uh concussion symptoms like periods where you just get really tired for no reason and stuff like that no i don't think i did it long enough okay yeah i was as a teenager and you know that was when ufc was pretty new and it was kind of the big thing and everyone was mm. into that sort of stuff or at least training yeah, I remember, what was it, 92 that it came out? Yeah, when you had the original, the Gracies and, and things Poise like Gracie, that. and I remember it wasn't legal everywhere. A friend of mine went to go watch it. He had to go to Louisiana because it was legal there, mm -hmm. but it wasn't legal in Texas. And at that time, there was only two rules, no biting and no eye gouging. Yep. <laughs> it was intense. Yep. yep. Well, why do you think serial killers are fetishized and almost turned into folk heroes? Because I remember when that recent TV series about Jeffrey Dahmer came out, people were going uh -huh. full on fanboy and fangirl for Dahmer. And I remember the host of some podcast, I can't remember, got on social media and was like, can I just say that people need to calm down with this Jeffrey Dahmer love? It's a great series, but he was a bad guy. You know, One of the worst, yeah. As far as why they're fetishized so much, I think it's kind of what I touched on before, that it's that feeling that you know they're doing something wrong, but that's something that our brains can't even get to that place. Mm -hmm. What would compel someone to do that? And I think that's ultimately what I love about serial killer genre is the psychology behind it even more so than kills. Mm -hmm. So as far as like slashers go, I prefer serial killer fiction over slashers necessarily. Mm -hmm. At least at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about fangirl. Ted Bundy, yep. the Night Stalker, he actually got married in prison, I think. Yeah. Before he was, wasn't he executed? I believe so. And he was almost killed on the street by yeah. just civilians. Yeah. Yes. He was in a, a Hispanic neighborhood and they were all screaming Matador. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't realize Matador literally meant killer until I read that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let's see, Ted Bundy. I mean, Ted Bundy was a handsome guy, so I guess he was like the ultimate bad boy. <laughs> Women were just <laughs> screaming over him and who else? Uh, definitely not the BTK killer. That guy was weird looking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it'll come to me. It'll come to me. Yeah, there's been quite a few. And I wanted part of that for maybe not so much in the same fashion, but for Charles, for the book, I wanted there to be a magnetism around him that people want to hear what he has to say, mm. as opposed to maybe a Gacy type that 
he wouldn't quite be so compelling to listen to on TV. Mm. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he would have been. Yeah. <laughs> well, this guy definitely, I mean, I have that knowledge having read the book. It's kind of unclear what he is, but he seems initially like he's definitely a narcissist par excellence. Like, I mean, just orchestrating his placement on a, a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that was... The goal for him was to take a narcissist and then take them three steps further. Mm. And what would that be like if someone who has that intelligence with that drive to kill people if necessary Mm. and put them together? And that's Charles. Mm -hmm. Did Charles, where did that name, I mean, obviously Charles is a common name, but did you choose it? Did it have anything to do with Charlie Manson at all? No, no, not in particular. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, there's been a few. There was Chucky, and it's just kind of a common name for, I don't know, if you think of a serial killer name. I wanted something that would be almost stereotypical, mm-hmm. just to the edge of it, where you go, oh, of course, that kind of sounds like a serial killer, <laughs> as opposed to, uh, you know, Dave uh-huh. doesn't sound like a serial killer to me. <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yep. my God, so. Tanner killed somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, then again, I guess Ted Bundy, but Ted doesn't sound like a killer. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, the motivation for most serial killers seems to be power, which is kind of connected to narcissism. I don't know if you're a a fan of philosophy or not, but Nietzsche said that the will to power was the prime mover of all life. And I know there's the random occurrence, I guess you would chalk it up to genetic mutation of evolution, where people are born sociopaths. The limbic system in their brain just doesn't allow them to process empathy. But a lot of serial killers are made by being horrifically abused. In those cases, do you think that the lack of power they had, having been abused as children, causes them to compensate for it in a way that is to the absolute extreme side of the coping spectrum? I think that's part of it, yeah. Although in Charles's case, power and control go hand in hand. And that's a part of his agenda, but he also wants to prove a point. And I think those sorts of serial killers are maybe produced differently. Mm-hmm. and the Ted Bundy types and the Dahmer types. Yeah, I think that's probably a big part of it, although there's a lot of people who also get abused and don't become serial killers. So mm-hmm. I agree with you that I think there has to be something in the brain from birth, mm-hmm. and maybe it gets triggered by the abuse, yes. Mm. So you don't think, I mean, there's a lot of sociopaths that don't become psychopaths. I think that's the delineation, right? A psychopath breaks the law, basically. Yes. I guess. In simple terms, I don't know. Yes. So, you know, in the criminology aspect, and I'm not, you know, that's not my background necessarily, but the Charles type killers and the jigsaws, and they're not considered psychopathic. They're sociopaths, but not psychopaths. I think what it is, it's just a break from reality. That's the difference. Okay. So a psychopath might literally think they're God and you need to sacrifice your son or something crazy like that, like acting out something out of the Bible. Okay. Or in a case of a uh, Ted Bundy, the break from reality would tell most of us don't abuse and murder women. And for him, he wanted that 
so much that he just went through with it anyway. That would be the psychopathic part. But he knew what was happening, though, right? Great question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I, w- I would I'm think sure he did. I would think Bundy was about power. Like he's for some reason felt powerless, so he was trying to become powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his background was, but I remember hearing people say that Dahmer, his childhood was fine. Mm-hmm. So, but I just I don't understand how somebody just decides to molest children one day and then once he's older in his adult years starts decapitating people like without something i mean even if he was born with some genetic anomaly that caused him to be a sociopath it just seems like such an extreme thing to take on i don't know but the rumor is there's a lot more sociopaths walking around than we realize so yeah whether that's true or not Mm. Well, in the story, Charles Proctor has an agenda, but is he also a sociopath? And can you expand on what makes him tick? Without giving away the uh, ending, I suppose. (laughs) Of of course, yeah. Yeah, I would say he would fall under a sociopath, Mm -hmm. although he does display a small amount of empathy at times without giving that away. And I think really it's the agenda that drives him and that must be completed at all costs. Mm -hmm. And that's really what makes him tick. And that's his uh, motivation every day is to complete his job, complete his duty. Mm -hmm. So that is a little delusional, I suppose. It's the jigsaw thing too. Like you mentioned before, it's, I love those movies more for the psychological aspect. Like I mentioned before, than the gore itself is because it's such a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. Jigsaw. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, like a soldier that's in war. I mean, I don't think any soldier wants to kill anybody, but like steals yeah. themselves to do what they have to do. Yep. Yeah. So as far as Charles goes, you know, sociopath, yes, probably so. Hmm. Psychopath, no. Okay. No, I don't think so. Listeners at home, find out why. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Read the book. Read the book. <laughs> Well, who is your favorite fictional account of a serial killer and why? I like the complexities of a Dexter mm. or a Patrick Bateman. And also not a serial killer necessarily, but a character like Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Those sorts of complex characters. That's really what I get into. Okay. I like Hannibal Lecter if we're just going by the movies and not the book, but uh, I like the depiction of Hannibal Lecter in the series Hannibal, because you really get to dig deep into just him and his daily life and his practice. Also a great choice. Mm -hmm. Well, so because murder was a gold mine, it was used to generate funding for an ailing police department who was supposed to be in charge of preventing murder, which is a tremendous conflict of interest. Were there any parallels for you with maybe war being a great fundraiser for an ailing economy, i.e. the military-industrial complex? Yeah, absolutely. And like I mentioned before, a lot of those sorts of interactions in the book were directly inspired by the work I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. And dealing with government agencies and the people that run them and the so-called people upstairs as they say a 
lot of that was based on those interactions and a lot of the things that I dealt with and a lot of the corruption I saw myself that, you know, I couldn't quite believe. It's all about the money. You know, it's like the saying, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Mm -hmm. You kind of don't want to know how the money's made either. And I don't think any of us really want to know. Yeah. Or maybe we don't. I don't know. No, I don't don't want to know. I really don't. (laughs) You know. So there's a lot of things to that that were put into the book. And a lot of those interactions, I just exchanged it for a police department. Mm -hmm. And it's the people that work themselves into positions of power in real life situations those are the culpable ones as opposed to the the people who show up to work every day and mm-hmm. do what they're asked to do for a paycheck because at the end of the day we need to eat yeah the rank and file so. mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting so i was never an enlisted member of the armed forces though i have been a welder since i was a teenager and i just i did contract work yeah. only so gotcha yeah mm-hmm well, I'm sure you were one of the, or are one of the best, I should say. Yeah, that's kind of what got me into those situations was certain trainings and skills and whatnot that I had acquired that not a lot of people in my area. And I live in a rather remote area where there's a lot of military and aerospace and whatnot around me. So, mm-hmm. No good deed goes unpunished. You'd be a good worker. <laughs> they, they put you on the uh, special projects. <laughs> so you can kind of see the parallel between something like that and an Aaron in the book. Yeah. That you get pushed into these situations that you entirely disagree with. Uh-huh. What are you going to do? And it's not always an easy no for certain people. And sometimes they pull strings and get you to do what they want you to do regardless. Yeah. So that was kind of the inspiration for some of that stuff. Gotcha. Well, as the old saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. And <laughs> there is a very common propaganda technique called FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's basically the production of material that is exaggerated, implied, or completely false to control people by using the appeal to fear. And I live in Southeast Texas, so there's an ever-present danger of hurricanes. And I have this hurricane tracker app that notifies me when there's an invest in the Atlantic, which is, you know, like the least organized form of it. I don't think it's technically even organized at that point. But since we've had this heat wave, nothing has been happening. So instead of getting alerts for invests floating in the Atlantic, I've been getting alerts for the possibility of the threat of a threat. They have to keep themselves relevant. They have to like throw something to keep you on edge. So you'll keep checking the app and not God forbid, delete it or anything like that. So how much of the unprecedented depression and anxiety of our nation do you think the news is responsible for? I think they're at the core of a lot of it. Although, like you alluded to, social media is mm. maybe equally as responsible. And, you know, the news shares the information and then you get on your favorite app and you see it shared repeatedly over and over and over. And it starts to stick in your head. Yeah. And ultimately, negativity is a much stronger drug than positivity right yeah why is that because you watch the local news it's all murder death torture and then one little oh there was a dog show and fluffy won third place and that's it you know 
Yeah, that's very true. And I think it appeals to our survival instinct if we were to break it down that far that at the end of the day, we're all just trying to survive mm. until tomorrow. We're wired for that. So keeps it in the back of your mind and it makes them money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see a school shooting on the news, you know, it's a horrific tragedy, but I almost feel like they take it to the umpteenth level. And I've actually been through a school shooting myself oh. as a survivor, not as a, obviously a perpetrator. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Clear, Thank you for clarifying, clarifying that. that. <laughs> yes. I was working there as a welder and it happened. And the funny thing was people I hadn't talked to in years were calling me because they knew I was at that school and they saw it on the news in real time. Mm. So I could definitely go on about that question for a very long time. But uh, (laughs) so. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yep. You've uh, had quite a (laughs) quite an interesting life as a welder. Yeah, I really have. It's taken me a lot of different places and it's a lot of opportunities that turned out to be good and bad have popped up from it. So, mm-hmm. and it's given me a lot of ammunition for stories too. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure firing that ammunition is tantamount to catharsis. If it's stuff that's sitting inside you, eating away at you, I would assume yeah. maybe not. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. And that's where a lot of my writing or my ideas come from is when I am working, my conscious mind is, busy on whatever project I'm working on. And these ideas will just kind of filter in. And eventually I decided, hey, we need to write these down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the story, everyone has a handheld device called a director that is assigned to everyone to act as a, quote, life manager, which I would think is the futuristic version of a smartphone. So what was the inspiration to refer to the device as a director as opposed to, say, an assistant? To imply control, Mm. whereas an assistant would be to help you get through your day and the director tells you how to get through your day. That would kind of be the short answer. I had a feeling because I'd like to think my phone is an assistant, but it's not. (laughs) Well, I'll be honest, I got a smartphone about three years ago, my first one, Uh and I had a flip phone before that, and I miss it. I prefer it, but my carrier doesn't do flip phones anymore, so. Uh, At least with a flip phone, you look cool, you know? It's a conversation starter for most people. They can't believe it. Yeah. Phone rings, you whip it out, flip it, Mm -hmm. talk, and as soon as you're done, you just knock it against your shoulder or something like that. What do you do with a uh, smartphone? Just deep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and everyone stares at you and can't believe it but Uh so i'm converted now i have a smartphone okay you have a director (laughs) it's starting to become one yeah for sure at this point it's still an assistant but it's morphing into a director it feels like that sometimes i feel like it pulls me in more and more and i have to spend more time on it all the time so gotcha Well, everyone also has a, I don't know if it's a PAC or if it's an acronym, P-A-C, assigned to them, which is a device implanted in their forearm, which monitors their vital signs as well as controls them and basically turns their body into an interface between digital devices such as their director and even their television set. And 
I guess before I get to the second part of the question, is PAC an acronym? Does it stand for something? Yes. Is it per- personal access computer? That's personal access computer. I was about to say personal accountability something. Yeah. Yeah. Personal access computer. Okay. Well, Elon Musk is developing the Neuralink, which is purported to do a lot of the same things, but it's actually implanted in your freaking brain. So mm-hmm. as far as we've gone with smartphones, I always have my phone on me. And most of the time I have an AirPod in one of my ears. Would you have something implanted in your brain? No, no, no. I would. I, I just got a smartphone. I, you know, I held on to my flip phone for 15 years. So, mm-hmm. or however long it was, 13 years. No, I wouldn't do that. It's very fascinating, an idea. Uh-huh. And I look forward to hearing from people who do it, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to do it either, but. What if it got to the point where, I mean, like right now, modern day, you can't really survive unless you're like retired or something. It's like you can't really survive without a smartphone. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do to a point because I did it up until a few years ago. But, you know, I've always had a laptop and that's kind of how I've handled everything. And yeah, I wouldn't have one, to be honest, if I didn't need one, although it has been tremendously helpful uh for my writing life i guess i shouldn't say survive just need one for day-to-day you know no well i mean in a certain point it is you know most jobs nowadays exist through emails mm-hmm. and if you're not accessible 24 7 you're falling behind so yeah there you yeah it's tough to thrive without one for sure and you know most people wouldn't know their way around town anymore without directions so I'm addicted to my smartphone, but I got to tell you, I did not mind when I had a BlackBerry. I don't know why. I love those little screens. I worked for a private company where I had to give an end of shift report, everything I did. And I would just type everything I did as I did it in that thing so that when I was done, I didn't have to type anything up. I just hit send and get out of there. And in my life, in my career, it's not ingrained in technology in the way that maybe an office job would be in Google spreadsheets and all of that. That's not my forte. And I've never stopped working even through COVID and whatnot. We just separated and worked away from other people. And we never worked from home or anything along those lines. And so from my career and my standpoint, my life is still very much based in the quote old days, you know, it's kind of the classic way of life. And we don't make phone calls and emails too much. And I'm actually, I'm a welding teacher now. I'm not a welder anymore. Mm. So I've had to adjust technologically. So to draw parallels to Erin, that's another facet of her personality that I took from myself is I'm slow to change. And I do at some point, but I like the way I grew up. And I like the way that we used to do things a little bit better. Mm. That's not a knock on technology because it does make our lives more convenient. But yeah, at what cost? There's always a uh, it's like that series Black Mirror. <laughs> There's always some unintended consequence that can be horrific. Yeah, it really seems that way. And, you know, again, I'm guilty as much as anyone as far as a lot of these things. It's not a condemnation. Mm. That's just. It is what it is. 
Well, circling back to the story, you incorporate a butterfly into your story, specifically the black swallowtail. And I looked this species up, and it is aesthetically amazing, especially the females. And I almost wish I could have used it for my podcast logo. <laughs> but um, what is your relationship with butterflies, specifically this butterfly? I had a black swallowtail land on my hand one time and I was staring at the pattern and it stayed there for a good five minutes or so. And I was just fascinated by the colors on it and the pattern kind of looks ancient. And the first thought that came into my mind was it almost would look like a premonition of death. This butterfly lands on you and now you're marked sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of musing to myself and humoring my whatever I was doing at the time. So I just write that down and stuff like that. I just write things down and I save them for later. Hmm. And when this idea came up to do this book, the black swallowtail symbolizes everything that Charles's message was about as far as rebirth and kind of washing away the old and beginning anew. Did you ever do any welding on an offshore oil rig? That is one thing I've never done, no. I knew this guy, he swears to God that he had like this spiritual moment where a butterfly landed on his shoulder on an offshore oil rig. Is that even possible? Like, what did it have? I believe it. Really? I do. And only because I seem to always encounter hummingbirds. And no matter where I am, I feel like there's always a hummingbird around me. Hmm. And you mentioned to someone, did you see that? No. Uh, maybe I'm imagining it. I don't know. But. Hmm. Everybody's so more I, spiritual I, than I am. It sucks. <laughs> and, you know, I never thought of myself that way. Maybe more so now than I used to be for sure. Mm -hmm. Not really exactly a religious person necessarily. I just, I guess, having a writing brain, I pay attention to a lot of things. Very observant. Yeah. So... Well, it is a great book, sir. I'm going to refrain from asking any further questions. I don't want to delve into spoilers and the like. But listeners at home, buy it, love it. Make sure to review it. The more reviews indie authors get, the more visible they become in the search results. So uh, I was doing that the other day. I was looking up somebody's book, and I typed the entire thing in and still couldn't find it. It was like the third page or something. So... Make sure, folks, to review these books. But I wanted to talk about some of your previous work. You also have a book prior to this called, and by the way, great title, Constructing Entropy, which is also centered around a serial killer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's whereas serial publication was more of a thriller, horror. This is more of a transgressive and dark humor, I think. A lot of people have called it quirky, mm. which is fair. Okay. And the serial killer in that book, his name is Sherman, and it's told from his point of view. So he's delusional as well. <laughs> and he's a wannabe author, and he's also an herbalist for pay. That's his trade. Okay. And that one kind of delves a lot into a lot of psychological and philosophical questions as well. And just kind of this serial killer trying to figure out why he is the way he is kind of like you mentioned earlier that question about our serial killers made and he doesn't take responsibility for any of it so 
So it's a little lighter hearted in certain respects than serial publication, but it is definitely, you know, serial killer horror. Okay. Well, on the horizon, I don't think it's come out yet. You've got your third, I don't know if it's a trilogy, possibly final installment of Symposium of the Reaper. Is that Yeah, it is the final. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and when the uh, release date is. That will be out in October. I don't have an exact date. I'm still trying to finalize everything, but it will be out in October. And it is the final 13 short stories in that collection. So 39 in total. Okay. And those stories are basically just, I do whatever I want to do. There's no rules. Sometimes I have a slasher story. Sometimes I have a very philosophical type of story. I have one in this collection called The After Death, and that was actually published in Siren's Call Publications magazine. So that it, that one is available now. Okay. And it follows someone who wakes up, thought he just died, but he lived a full life and then a full death. And then it explores what happens after death. Mm, awesome. So not a horror story exactly, but it's dark and it's very existential, which is something I like to have fun with. So these stories are just whatever I feel like doing at that particular time. Right. Well, I'm trying to remember where I read it. I don't think you heavily advertise it, but I read somewhere you're working on another novel entitled Infernal Moon. Yes, Infernal Moon is done. And I'm currently seeking through publication options for that one. I want to find it the best home possible. That one took me a year to write. And typically, I get through my projects rather quickly, like four or five months. Mm -hmm. And that one, I guess I can say the spoiler about it. It's not a spoiler, but um, it's based on the concept of Dante Inferno's Nine Circles of Hell. Mm -hmm. And it's about a boy who has nightmares. And he's watching through the eyes of murder victims as they're being killed. Oh, wow. So those are his nightmares, and it's not happening to him directly, but he's seeing that and waking up and having night terrors and whatnot. So it's pretty horrific, and the concept of the nine circles was something that I really wanted to get into and ended up taking me a year. So <laughs> so you did some research? I did a lot of research on the nine circles of hell, yes. Oh, you're a scholar. All right. Just a welder here. So I'm really excited for that one. And that's why I want to find it the best home possible. Uh I've self-published everything else I've done, which is also a great option. But like you mentioned, sometimes you can't even find it on Amazon. Yeah. So this book, I want to give it the best possible opportunity to at least be seen a little bit better. Yeah. So are you talking about small press or are you getting a literary agent for a while. Is there more than two mainstream publishers anymore? I think Penguin Random House is trying to yeah. merge with Simon & Schuster. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ideally, a small press would be a good home for it. It's a horror novel, but it's psychological, and there's a lot of things going on. I've only had two people read it so far mm-hmm. that I know very well. Both of them said it was their favorite that I've written so far, so I'm hoping that rings true for a lot more people as well. Awesome. Well, which writing influence would you say had the biggest effect on the subject matter of your work? 
some of the classics, Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft and things like that were big influences. But I think even more so than that would be, like I mentioned before, my favorite book of all time is A Clockwork Orange. Mm. And it's not a horror book, but there are some elements of horror. It's transgressive. It's weird. Mm. It's morally gray. And it leaves a lot more questions than it answers. Yeah. And I'm also a huge fan of uh, Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> yeah. And things like that. So all of those combined, I think, have created what I'm doing now. It, and I love horror movies as well, but I love watching Fight Club just as much as Halloween. Mm. So those would be the influences. And Goosebumps was a huge one when I was young, uh -huh. that series. So I think he did a fantastic job. Even now, I, I think they're great writing, even for adults. Yeah. So, yep, it's just um, so wonderfully odd and bizarre and unique. And those are the sorts of things that really keep my attention because as with a lot of people, my attention spans razor thin. So, <laughs> Well, you mentioned horror films. Are there any other artists of other art forms that influence your writing besides, you know, other writers? Yeah, I think the biggest influence would be music. I'm a diehard, absolutely huge metal fan. So, What's on your shirt there? Suffocation. Suffocation. So like death metal. <laughs> yeah, I love death metal and black metal and all of it. I've been a fan since I could talk. I mean, Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth and all that. And my older sister was into a lot of that stuff when I was a kid. So the themes in that kind of have influenced me a lot. You know, the one and only time... How do I, how do I phrase this correctly? The time I almost saw Deicide, I went to a show. <laughs> they got into a car wreck. They uh, oh, wow. Their bus was there, and I guess they got into a car to go eat or something like that. And on their way back, they got into a car wreck. I don't think anybody was hurt because... They came back to the club and left, but I mean, that's what they told. They were the headliners and granted we got to see Marduk open up. That was pretty cool. But, uh, oh, yeah. but like, they were like, um, Deicide was involved in a car accident, so they will not be playing tonight. And I asked, I think it was the sound man or the bouncer. I was like, they're really not playing. He's like, no, they're already gone. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Obviously they're okay because they're still doing well today but yeah i saw them one time deicide uh -huh. so i try to go to a lot of concerts and shows and whatnot as much as i can my life is pretty busy nowadays but stuff like that and suffocation and cannibal corpse and etc oh, yeah. um it really has influenced kind of my worldview and my art and stuff like that not cannibal corpse that not my worldview i should say <laughs> <laughs> hammer smash face yeah. uh, never hit anyone in the face with a hammer have you ever pounded anybody into dust <laughs> not yet no um, <laughs> but it's you know metal is all about extremes extreme emotions and thoughts mm. and whatnot so even if you don't believe in them like hitting someone in the face with a hammer it's about the extremity of it and that's what I love and I'm not an extreme horror writer necessarily but I do cover some of the topics. Do you remember Cannibal Corpse being in Ace Ventura because uh, Jim Carrey was a fan of theirs? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, that was the first time I ever heard of that. It was, <laughs> was crazy. I knew of them before that, but I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were, uh, that was with, uh, Chris Barnes still yeah. in the band still. Mm-hmm. So I was the kid in junior high and high school that had the band shirts all the time and had to flip them inside out. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. when it comes to reading, do you kind of stay in that wheelhouse of horror? Do you go into the extreme areas like splatterpunk or do you have a a really wide spectrum? Like, do you, I mean, there's no judgment here. Do you go as far as reading romance novels? (laughs) No, I don't. I would if I wanted to, Uh, but like I said, I need something that's going to keep me engaged frequently. So I do tend to, have a wide scope of what I like to read. And sadly, I don't read too much anymore because my reading time is now my writing time Yeah, for the most part. So yeah. I like to read a lot of indie horror authors. Like you mentioned before, Alana K. Drex, I've read her mm-hmm. novella, Sleeping Celeste. I read that recently. Another friend of mine, Mason Marks, I've read his books. People like that only because there's a bit more a sense of community. Mm-hmm. I love, Chris Triana's books mm. and things like that. But like I mentioned before, my favorite book is Clockwork Orange. So things along that line and, and Fight Club and The Stranger and you name it. I like odd stuff. And Splatterpunk is good too, but yeah. What was the first novel you read and what feelings did the writing, not the story, evoke in you when you realized what could be accomplished with the written word? The very first novel I read, you know, I'm not even sure. The first horror novel I read was Dracula, the original. Okay. And the style of writing from the time period definitely left a mark because they had a bit more freedom with their words as opposed to now. I feel like it's almost frowned upon to play around with your sentence structure a little bit and, mm. and to write. Cormac McCarthy's another huge one for me. Yeah. The man didn't use commas. Rest in peace. (laughs) Yep. Godspeed, sir. But does anyone care that he doesn't use commas or quotation marks? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The writing's just that good. And I I love that about the older style. You ever read Hubert Selby Jr.? Requiem for a Dream? Last Exit to Brooklyn? I've never read the book, no. I can't remember what it is. He uses the forward slash in place of something. I think it might be apostrophe. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I could be wrong. But uh, yeah, it's weird how there's just some people that they're allowed because of their talent to just disregard shit like that. Yep. And I wouldn't try it out myself in this day and age. But, you know, I think at that time, they weren't trying to do anything but tell a story Mm. and however it came out is how it came out and i also love stuff like you know mark twain and things like that it's not something i read every day but Mm. really into it was there anything you do outside of reading that you feel fosters your creativity i think the biggest thing that helps is just staying busy and working and living a very full life. And by the end of the day, when I get to write, my brain is almost ready to just shut down. And Uh that helps the creative side come out. So I'm not thinking, I'm just writing whatever is coming into my scope there. So I think that would be the biggest thing is just staying busy and working and 
talking to people and things like that. Well, counter to that, is there anything you avoid because you feel it stifles your creativity? No, I wouldn't say I avoid anything necessarily for that reason. I try to write at different times a day and and really whenever I can squeeze it in. So it's kind of more of a necessity than anything. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, I got an hour. I'm going to write right now. So it's not a conscious effort to try to avoid that. I look at it very much like something I need to squeeze in every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm not too worried about the creative part. I just kind of trust the process, I guess. Well, do you have a particular medium and atmosphere? Or if you're in the house and it's empty, do you type here on a laptop? And if you're waiting for the kids at school, you're typing in your phone? Yeah, pretty much like that. I try to stay flexible. And if I'm actually writing, we'll be on a laptop. I do a lot of pen and paper, actually. So oh, really? uh, that's where I work out my ideas. Yeah. See, you're a welder and you write with pen and paper. Hell yeah. I'd give you a fist bump through the... There we go. Yeah. Screen fist yeah. bump. <laughs> I'm very old fashioned in a lot of ways. Yeah. So Tell me you use a mechanical typewriter like Cormac McCarthy. I would love to. <laughs> I really would love to. I just you know, there goes that convenience again. Yeah. So I used to have one and I loved it. But as far as typing out an entire novel, I get antsy when I take too long to finish a project because I have so many things I want to get to Mm. all the time. So I feel like it would take me a bit longer. And I doubt there would be any late night or early morning typing while everybody's asleep because you'd be hammering away at that thing. That's a big part of it too. Yeah. Yep. Well, how much of the plot progression of a book is already in your head before you even start writing it? And how do you proceed with what you have? I typically have the next couple projects outlined while I'm doing the current one. So as of right now, I've got the next three books planned. Mm -hmm. And when I say planned, I mean, you know, a skeleton outline. They're not done by any stretch. The biggest thing is I need to know the ending first and then I know the rest of it's easy. Hmm. So once I have the main idea and I have the ending, then I start from the beginning. When you say outlined, you said skeleton, but is that like somewhat formal or are you using the term skeleton as well? It's just kind of like sparsely populated, some milestones here and there. It's a very messy written notebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I always carry a notebook with me and a pen and those ideas I just scribble down in there, my lunch break or whatever it is. Well, do you ever get writer's block? Not necessarily, no. We all have bad days where it's not really happening and you just, you can't get through what you want to do. You're tired or whatever it is. I've never had an extended period where I just couldn't make it happen, no. I've never had that. Do you think that's more of a case of anxiety when people get that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. And, you know, there's certain things that can stifle your creativity. And Mm. I think that's, you know, everybody's different. I write best at night. Some people like to write in the morning. So I think a lot of it kind of goes down to your brain chemistry, too. Mm. Really, the whole process, I don't understand myself, the creative process. Yeah, It's still confusing to me. So I'm not sure. Why I've never had it, I think maybe it's, I just take a relaxed approach to this and I'll just, I'll get it done when I get it done. 
and maybe putting pressure on yourself that you need to create the greatest thing ever written or whatever it is. So everything that you're writing, you hate it. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I go through it too, for sure. Yeah. Well, you teach welding, yes. got a family. What role do you want writing to play in your life? The ultimate goal would be to do it full time would be fantastic. I'm not sure how feasible that is. And mm -hmm. we'll see. I am happy to keep doing it as long as I can squeeze everything together. I'm happy to have readers and that alone is enough to keep me going, to have people to share it with and have people that read it and leave reviews and to talk to people and the other authors I've met and the indie authors. It's been a great community. So, you know, just to keep going and I look at it as a challenge. So I'm the most competitive person with myself. The last book I wrote was good. I got to do the next one even better. So that's kind of my internal goal for myself is just keep getting better and better all the time. Yeah. And I mean, if the ultimate goal of not being able, well, I don't want to word it that way. I want to put good thoughts going your way, but like you would have no problem continuing, right? Cause you have the passion for the craft. Yeah. I have ideas for at this point in time, 12 more books. Oh God. That's awesome. So, <laughs> you're going to be hearing from me for sure. Yeah. The only thing, you know, is just balancing everything and making sure it's all getting the attention it deserves, whether that's work or family or even the author life and making sure I'm not neglecting the people out there. And mm -hmm. so far, so good. Well, with the advent of tech, as we've been talking about, and it being geared for short bursts of creativity. What do you think about the future of long form fiction? Because I asked the same question to another author and she said that she had been writing more novellas because when she was running her stats, she noticed that her novellas were selling better. And serial publication, it's a decent sized book. Do you plan on maintaining that? Or what do you think about your long form versus shorter fiction? I think there's valid concern that it might lose some of its allure to people. And for myself, that's probably about the longest I'll ever go is I think serial publication was just shy of 70,000 words. Mm -hmm. That's about as long as I think I'd want to do for myself. I do want to write a few more novellas and that's actually what I'm going to start doing with the Symposium of the Reaper series. So as opposed to short stories, we're going to switch over to novellas. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, I think there's valid concern that, you know, maybe a longer novel, but Stephen King still sells books and mm -hmm. no one's going to stop buying and reading them. So yeah, yeah I'm not Stephen King, but um, <laughs> don't sell yourself <laughs> short, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. But you know, the way I look at it, CDs and vinyl are still around. Yeah. So, yeah. There's an audience for everything. Yeah, there is trying to think of ronald kelly he said it out loud he's like i love writing doorstops <laughs> you know it, it's a different kind of satisfaction when you finish the project yeah. i think ultimately it's more important to follow your inspiration and what idea you have mm. as opposed to you know trying to meet an arbitrary word count or page count or yeah. that's what the publishers want but yeah yeah, is it true with uh, mainstream? I mean, maybe it's even true with small press. I'm not a writer, but I know with 
mainstream publishing, I've heard that the word count is often predicated on how many books fit in a case. I've heard similar things, yes. Yeah, that seems like a bizarre thing to base something artistic off of. It's something similar with YouTube videos and things like that, that they have to reach a certain length for their ad revenue. Yeah. They have to hit a certain number and then they get more money per ad and things like that. I don't really play along. I just do what I do. (laughs) So self-published, it's been a a good way for freedom and for me to just do whatever I feel like doing. Well, are you a fan of indie feature length and short film? Yes. A friend of mine, he's an indie filmmaker. And he actually produced my audio book for the Symposium of the Reaper, Volume 1. Cool. And he's just kind of a jack of all trades. And he's made a feature length indie horror film. Really? And he's made a bunch of short horror films as well. So his name is Jason Mayer. Jason Mayer. M-A-Y-E-R. Is he on Alter or anything like that? I'm not sure, to be honest. But he's done a few short films recently and gone around film circuits and things like that. I was actually in one of them as an actor. No shit. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm no actor. I just, I filled in. But he made a film back in 2013 called, oh boy, don't let me butcher this. It's either no one gets out alive or nobody, but Mm -hmm. he's a good friend of mine and great guy and great filmmaker. Other than him, like with my reading time, I'm kind of out of the current, pantheon really i used to watch everything that came out every single bad horror film and movies like uh tucker and dale versus evil if you've ever seen that one i love that movie okay that was 2010 yeah i haven't seen that one it's goofy it's a goofy horror movie but the dead snow movies those are some of my favorites as well and things like that that was kind of more my era and i started to travel a lot for work at that point in time and kind of cut off my movie time. Gotcha. Nobody Gets Out Alive. That's the film. Nobody that Gets he made. Out Alive. It's a feature length. Yeah. Okay. 2013. I will write that down. It was a slasher movie. Okay. Well, what is the life of Andrew Adams like outside of writing? It's pretty full. <laughs> You've alluded to a lot of it, but just in case there's some, you know, underwater basket weaving, crocheting, anything like that. <laughs> I'm sure as time goes on, I'll learn. <laughs> I have kids and they play sports and they keep me busy. And I like to play sports myself. So a lot of things like that work. I try to keep up on my schooling for myself and keep myself busy and getting better all the time at my job and my craft, which is writing. Mm-hmm. And basically just try to fill up every day with as much as I can. (laughs) Even when I feel like I shouldn't, I just, I can't help myself. Sometimes to my own detriment, but um, that's pretty much what I'm doing. I I try to spend at least a good amount of time on my Instagram is the only one that I deal with social media wise. Try to talk to people on there and squeeze that in when I can. Try to write when I can. It's pretty busy, but uh, it's good. Well, Andrew, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Really enjoyed my time, and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? 
Yeah, we did mention Symposium Volume 3 will be out in October. Those are short stories, but I think it came in at about 200 or so pages. So it's got some volume to it. And then we've got uh, Infernal Moon will be out to be determined, but that's coming. And then the other books as well. The other two Symposium Volumes and Constructing Entropy and Serial Publication are all on Amazon. So... I'm looking forward to getting back out there and doing some signing events, but at this time I have nothing on the forecast. So, all right, awesome. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Andrew, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, and thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by an author of dark gothic short stories. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. I